Well, good evening. Praise God for air conditioning. Amen? Amen. I went outside and I told the kids to turn the heater off, please. They didn't listen. So we want to welcome you guys tonight for our journey through the Bible as we study God's Word. And a couple of things before we get started I want to remind you of. Um, we do have a baptism that is on the schedule for the 28th. And whether you're here tonight or you're, you're watching online, I want to encourage you, if you haven't been baptized, uh, we'll, we'll do baptisms anytime. But we'll have water in the tank on the 28th, so you're more than welcome to um, consider being baptized. I know we've got, I think, four lined up already. Um, and if you want to be baptized, just call the church office, set an appointment with me, and we'll talk about it. Make sure that you're all ready for it. Um, I, I'm super excited because we had someone come to faith last week that wants to get baptized in next week. So it's like super, super cool. So we got that going on. Let's go ahead and let's pray. And we'll ask God's blessing on our time. God, we thank you. You're gracious and kind to us. You're patient and long-suffering. Lord, we know that you are doing a work in our midst. I thank you for those that, especially the last few months, that are just coming to faith and and wanting to be baptized and declaring their faith. God, you're doing a great work, uh, a great work in the hearts of people. Lord, we know that uh, it is a work that you do by the power of your Spirit. And so, in that same vein, Holy Spirit, come. Fall fresh upon us even tonight as we prepare our hearts through worship and music, and we worship you through the study of Word. Lord, as we take a look at John 1 here and the witness of John the Baptist and Lord, how you had moved on so many hearts. Lord, we pray that you be with the youth as they're getting ready for the retreats and all that they have going on this weekend and tonight for science camp. God, we ask that you would be present and minister to our hearts as we surrender our lives to you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. together.
worship you alone. We lift up a thousand hallelujahs to you, Lord, and we thank you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for this time, and we thank you for the message we are about to hear. Open our hearts and let us um, just hear the message you have for us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. you imagine what it would be like to be able to worship God without ever getting tired? <laughs> that would be awesome. We... Uh, we're blessed to be able to gather together and to be able to study God's Word. A couple of, couple of side notes, too. Those of you that know Marvin Mary Laughlin, Mary graduated to be with the Lord here earlier this week, and so we can be praying for Marvin. We're going to do that tonight, uh, be able to pray for him. Um, she had some, some medical stuff that was going on, and the Lord decided to take her home. And so that will be coming up here uh, I would imagine the family will let us know what's going to be going on with that. But I'd like to just pray for Marvin. It's, it's going to be a, a hard go for him, and if we can pray for him um, in in light of that. So let's do that now. So Father, we thank you that we can come to you. And we think of this song, A Thousand Hallelujahs, yeah, and to be able to spend eternity with you, Lord. We know that that is uh, the goal. That is the our, our our paradise, the final resting place. Lord, I thank you that Mary is with you and you've set her free of, of the disease and the things that were going on with her. Lord, we know that that is the, the perfect healing that, that comes about. Lord, we do lift up Marv and the Laughlin family. Lord, we would ask that you would strengthen them during their times of grief and sorrow and loneliness, for sure. And that you be that comfort that you can be. So, Lord, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you would, open up your Bibles to John chapter 1, beginning with verse 19. We're going to finish chapter 1 tonight as we continue in this study. And what John is doing is he is writing, which is different than the other uh, Gospels. He's, he's not writing a synoptic or an instinct Gospel that matches with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But he's writing a, a Gospel that actually tells the story, the account, and gives the reason why should you believe in Jesus. Which is an answer that we need to be able to give to people today. They want to know, why should I believe? Why should I believe in this Jesus? Why should I have faith in Him? And in John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31, at the end of his book, he writes, Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book, but that have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and in believing you may have life in his name. John's gospel is an evangelistic gospel. It is meant to tell the account of Jesus so that you will believe. Reasons that you will believe that he is the Son of God. And so he keeps it simple, and he focuses on the seven miracles and the seven messages and the things that are there. And we're picking up in John's first chapter here is he's, he's already declared that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he's introduced this man named John, in a couple of different passages, and we're picking up where he's going to give a little bit more testimony about John being this witness. And so in verses 19 to 23, we'll read, and it says, This is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and didn't deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, and he says, Well, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you a prophet? And he answered, Nope. And then they asked, they said to him, Well, who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? And he said, 
I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. So he opens up and he's declaring as John the Apostle is writing of John the Baptist or the baptizer, that John's role was a forerunner. He was to be the witness that was going to link what was Old Testament prophecy to Jesus the Messiah or the coming of the Messiah that is there. And he was baptizing in the wilderness area. When you go into Jerusalem, if you were to head due east, down the road towards Jericho, just across from the road towards Jericho, and, and hopefully if you've been to Israel with us, you can kind of picture this in your mind. You come out of Jericho, and then you go down towards the river, and there is the Jordan River. Now, it is not the place that I would choose to get baptized. I like the northern part of the Jordan River where it's nice and clean and flowing, and there's little fish that nip at you, but that's okay. But this part that's down towards Jerusalem is muddy. It's very narrow. It's not very wide. Very muddy. But John the Baptist would have been down in this area, baptizing people within this area. And John had become very popular. He was Jesus' cousin. And, and it was foreshadowed that he would be the forerunner for Jesus. He'd become very popular in baptizing people, and the crowds were coming out to him. In fact, in Matthew 3, 5, it says... Then Jerusalem, hyperbole, right, so it's big speak, then Jerusalem was going out to him in all of Judea and all the districts around the Jordan. Now, he was popular, but he wasn't that popular. When he says Jerusalem and all, the, it meant a large number of people from these areas were coming out. Now, what, that had ha what happened was, because he had become so popular in baptizing, well, the religious leaders go, well, who is this guy? Who is this guy that's doing these baptisms? that are out here. We need to check him out. So they sent out the priests and the Levites to try to scrutinize his ministry. And within that, and they want to know, who are you really representing? What is this baptism really all about? Now, these classes of representatives, the priests and the Levites, they were the leaders in the temple worship. And so whenever religion has a stranglehold on the people and tries to control people, Whenever God was doing a new work, they saw it as a threat and they wanted to either exterminate the threat or discredit the threat or do what they were going to do. They would do it with Jesus and they would, they would do it ongoing. So these religious leaders felt threatened by John's ministry because of his popularity. And, and quite frankly, John's ministry didn't fit their system. If you remember that in John the Baptist, he was known for wearing a coat of, of camel's hair and he had a leather belt and he was eating grasshoppers and honey. Not really the priestly thing to do. And it's always interesting to me that when God does a new work, He always does it outside of the box of religion. Right? He does it outside of what man has formed as the status of what religious should be, religion should be. And so within that, these religious leaders, they came out and they wanted to check Him out. In Matthew 3, 7, it says this, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said this. This guy's a little gutsy. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? <laughs> That's pretty bold to think about it. you got the religious leaders. These are the guys. This would be like the government coming out and checking you out because the religious system was the government at the time. And he says, you brood of vipers, you bunch of snakes. 
You, who, who warned you about the wrath to come that you're trying to escape it? And I thought, well, that's, that's pretty bold. But their question was, who are you? What are you about? Well, I love John's answer because I'm not going to answer that. I'm going to tell you who I'm not. And so in 20 and 21, he says, I am not the Christ. Literally, I am not the anointed one, the Messiah. And they say, well, what then? Are you Elijah or a prophet? And he says, nope, not a prophet. Now, John's answer was pretty strong. When he says, I'm not the Christ, in Greek, it really is this, I am absolutely not the Christ. Now, why would they ask that question? Because in, in the Jewish culture, they were looking for the Messiah. And when the Messiah would come, they're trying to identify him, or those that would think that they're Messiah. There were many people in that day that were self-declared Messiah or self-declared anointed ones. Just like in, in, in our day, there are self-appointed religious people that, that are all uppity. And so they're self-appointed in that way. And so the religious leaders, one, would guard against these self-appointed religious leaders that would call themselves as the Messiah because the Jews were looking for their Messiah. And so in their, their question, they're really saying, well, who do you think that you are? And, and, and are you the Messiah? And he says, absolutely not. He understood what his role was. Every Christ follower has a lane to operate in. We're children of the Most High. We are disciples and followers of Jesus Christ. We should never elevate ourselves above that position. And it doesn't matter if you're a pastor or a parishioner. You should always know that we serve the Most Holy God. And not make it about ourselves. And I love the fact that John, even in his popularity, said, I am not the anointed one. There's a problem, though, with many re people in, in religious leaders is when they get a following, they start becoming elitist. Right? And they start becoming self-appointed. And they, you know, they, they think they don't stink and that their words are gold and, and they're equal to Scripture and they're not. John had one job pointing people towards Jesus. He was a representative. And he understood that there is only one God and one Messiah, and he's not it. And I think that's a good place to be. He, he kept things simple. Well, in asking him, are you Elijah, are you the prophet, what were they looking for? They were looking for a specific fulfillment. Because prior to the coming of the Messiah, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 said this, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Well, why? Because Elijah didn't die. Elijah was taken up into heaven in what? A fiery chariot. And it was prophesied in Malachi before the Messiah would come that Elijah the prophet would come as the forerunner. So these religious leaders are going, okay, well, we, if you're not the Messiah, that's good, that's a good answer. But you sure look like an Old Testament prophet. Kind of like Elijah. Are you Elijah? Because if you're Elijah, that means the Messiah is going to be coming soon. So they're trying to get their eschatology in line. And so they're questioning him within this. And it's interesting because the definite article is the prophet. Are you the prophet? And they're trying to figure this out. And so they were looking for the prophet that would come. 
In fact, it was even spoken of in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 to 18, where in speaking of Moses, it says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. This is according to all that is asked of the Lord your God at Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again of the voice of the Lord. Let me not see this great fire anymore, or I will die. The Lord said to me, They have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their own countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Are you Elijah? No. Are you Moses? No. Now we know in the end days that there will, when the church is taken out, and in the judgment comes, there's going to be two witnesses, two prophets that will come. And most people believe that it is Elijah and Moses that it come back prior to the end times, prior to the coming or the return of Jesus in his second advent. Within that, I hold to that, and I believe that to be true. And we find those witnesses that speak out, and then they are slain, laid in the streets in, in the end times, and then they're resurrected within that. So they're trying to get some of their eschatology lined up and say, well, who are you? And I love the fact that John comes and he says, no, but Jesus will say, and you can look at it later, but I'll give you the reference, in Mark 9, 11 to 13, Jesus will say that John came in the spirit of Elijah. So we see this partial fulfillment of John coming in the spirit and the emphasis of Elijah, but he's not Elijah, to be able to announce and prepare the way for the first advent of Jesus, as he would be revealed as the Messiah. So then they ask the legitimate question, verses 22 and 23, well, what do you say about yourself then? If you're not the Messiah and you're not the prophet, then who are you? And he quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3. He says, A voice is calling, and clear the way of the Lord in the wilderness, and make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. And so within this, they want to know, well, who are you? And he says, I'm a herald. What was a herald? A herald was a person, as the king would get ready to venture off into the villages or the towns or wherever he's going to go, a herald would go ahead of the king and prepare all the people to receive the king. And so his role was to go and get people ready. Now John's role is amazing. Because, mind you, God hasn't spoken for how long? 400 years. People, when we think about that, we've been a country, what, 270-something years? They haven't heard from God for 400 years. Their ear is not turned towards God at all. And so God sent John to wake him up, to get him ready for the first advent. And so John was sent to prepare the way for Jesus. And John's mode of clearing the path was not road construction. John's mode for preparing people was baptism. How did he get them ready? Well, two things. One... The Spirit of God was working on the people and they were getting this unction to be baptized. But what was the baptism? It wasn't a baptism into salvation or confessing a salvation. It was a baptism of repentance. What was he calling them to? To become aware and confess that they're sinners. 
Now, if you think about the process of salvation, what is the first step necessary to be saved? To confess that I'm a sinner. To be aware that I'm a sinner. Well, up until then, for 400 years, and all of the sacrifices and all of that, they've fallen into dead ritual practices. They weren't acknowledging their sin. They were going through rote. What do you do? I'm going up to the temple. Why, why am I going to the temple? Because it's what we do. Why do you do it? I don't know. It's what we've always done. Law says we've got to do it. We've got to do it. And there is something that this new movement that's happening, where with John, he is baptizing outside of the temple. He is out in the wilderness. And he is calling them to repentance. Repent. Acknowledge the fact that you're a sinner. And that's how he's plowing the road and, and plowing up the hard hearts. So many times we, we go right in and say, you know, accept Jesus and have eternal life. That's a good message. But what separates me from God? That really needs to be the first message. What separates me from God? My sin. Everyone has a sin problem. We are born into it. And you have to address the sin problem in order to be able to accept forgiveness of those sins. But if you don't confess that you're a sinner, if you don't acknowledge your sin, then there's no value in saying, I accept forgiveness of sins because you really don't acknowledge the fact that you're a sinner. You're just looking for fire insurance. You just, you just want to get saved because you want to go to a better place. We need to mourn over our sin. And the more that, that we acknowledge the fact that our, that our sin separates us from God, the greater the value of the redemption and the forgiveness. It has is, it is become a, a fad thing to make salvation an easy thing. We're scared to tell people that they're sinners and that their sin has separated them from God. And if they remain in that sinful condition, they will die and spend eternity in judgment because of that sin. But Jesus paid the price for that sin and removed that penalty. John was bold enough to do that. And if you've got a guy in camel's hair and a leather belt eating grasshopper telling you you're a sinner, it's a serious message. And within this, people were going, yes, I acknowledge it. And so within this, he is declaring this. Now, you think about this, this whole concept John was taking something that was part of the Jewish culture. Baptism was normal. If you were not a Jew and you wanted to convert to Judaism, you would be baptized. And it would be, you would be a proselyte. So you would say, I am, going to, I am going to turn away from my sin. I'm going to follow Yahweh God and obey the law. And I'm going to be baptized. So what they would do, and symbolically, they would go into the water, be baptized into the faith of Judaism, symbolically washing away their sins. If you were a Jew, before you could go worship, you would have to go through what's called a mikvah. A mikvah is basically a ceremonial washing. Before you were to go into worship, you would have to go into a mikvah and say this was the pedestal of the mikvah. And that was the tank. You would go down one set of steps into the water. You would wash. And then you'd come up a different set of steps. So I'd go down a sinner. I would wash and I would come out sinless or washing away that sin. Then I can go worship and I can offer my sacrifice. 
So what John did is he took this baptism of conversion into being a proselyte, and he says, I'm going to redefine it and say, when you get baptized, what you're doing is making a public acknowledgement that you're a sinner. Now, a Christian baptism is different. Because a Christian baptism is acknowledging that my sins are forgiven. That, Jesus, that just as Jesus died on the cross and was put in the, in the tomb and came out again resurrected, so I am in Christ, and then I am in Christ. As he went in the tomb, I go into the water, and as he came out of the tomb, I'm coming out of the water, identifying with Jesus, and I'm publicly declaring that I'm a Christ follower. That's the purpose of baptism. And within this, this John, he was preaching this baptism of repentance. In fact, Mark 1.4 says, John appeared in the wilderness preaching the baptism for repentance. Note, for the forgiveness of sins or in anticipation of the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins wouldn't take place until Jesus died on the cross. But he's prepping everybody for that, getting them ready for that within that. And again, they were, he was using something that was very normal to the Jewish culture. Ezekiel 36.25 says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you. You will be clean, and I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all of your idols. So he took something that was part of their religious practices, reinstituted it to prepare them for the way. That's how he heralded people to get them ready for the Messiah. Verses 26 to 28. Eight tells us a little bit more that John knew that his job was to get people ready for the unknown Jesus, the unknown Messiah that was in the area. 26, 28 says this. John answered and saying, I baptize in water, but one stands, note, but among you one stands whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. So we know that that was the location. So what's interesting is the unknown baptisms that John was doing, which was totally weird to the Jewish priests, was prepping people for the unknown Messiah that was there, getting them ready. He was unknown by, by the natural man. In fact, we read it earlier in verse 10, he came to the world, the world didn't know him. He was unknown by the Jews, verse 11. He came to his own people. They didn't know him. He was unknown by the religious leaders, and that would be true all the way up until the crucifixion. And John, even though he was his cousin, didn't really know that he was Messiah. Had an inkling, didn't know. Was not convinced within that. In fact, even later, when John was in prison, he would send his disciples and he would say, if you are the Messiah, tell me. Because he's still working it out within that. But he answers and he says, look, it, the one who is coming, he's the one that gave me authority. In fact, he's here right now. Somewhere. Somewhere in it right now. All he knows is he has a job to do. What was John's role? Preparing the way. His role was to make Jesus visible. He had one job. Get everybody ready for Jesus. 29 to 34 says this. The next day, he, being John, saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he 
on behalf of whom I've said, after me comes a man who is higher rank for me, for I exist before me. And, and I didn't recognize him, but so that he might be manifest to Israel, I came baptizing in the water. John testifying, saying, I have seen the Spirit descend on a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I didn't recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in the water said to me, He is upon whom you see the Spirit descend, and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Question. When did John realize that Jesus was Messiah? At Jesus' baptism. He testified that. How? Because God spoke to John the baptizer and said, you'll know for sure when the dove comes upon him, when the Holy Spirit descends upon him. He makes this declaration when Jesus shows up. If you remember the account, Jesus shows up to be baptized and John says, what are you doing? I don't, I can't baptize you. This isn't right. You need to baptize me, not me baptize you within this. And so the Spirit of God reveals to him that this is the Lamb of God, and he uses this, this analogy from Exodus chapter 12. If you remember, what was the tenth plague? It was the angel of what? Death that would come. And how would the people of Israel in Egypt avoid death within the house of the firstborn? They'd have to do what? They have to kill a lamb, right? And take the blood and put it on the, on the lentil and the doorposts. And then the angel of death would do what? Passover. And he gave to them as a memorial, the Passover memorial celebration to always remember. And it was always going to be a picture of a lamb that spares from death. When John speaks of Jesus, he says, behold, the, uses a definite article, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. These are definite articles. It's not a lamb, not one of many. The sin of the world. And so this Passover lamb was established. Later on in Leviticus chapter 16, they would establish what was called a scapegoat. And so the priest would lay hands on, on one and, and that one, the sins of Israel would be put upon on the, on the Day of Atonement. And the, the, the sins would go on that one and would go off into the wilderness and then the second one they would slaughter. Within this we see God taking away of sin and, and carefully covering that sin. But he always promised the solution, not a solution, the solution for sin. And it would be Jesus. And he would speak in a language that they would understand, this Passover lamb. Isaiah 53, 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Note, like a lamb that's led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before his ears, he didn't open his mouth. We know Jesus is that lamb because he's spoken of as the lamb in Revelation. Revelation 5, 6. And I saw between the throne with four living creatures and the elders... A lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. Who is that? That's Jesus. You know what's the amazing thing when I always think about this? Jesus, for all eternity, 
added to himself humanity, and in that physical being will always bear the marks of the cross. For all eternity, when you see Jesus, you're going to be reminded of the cross through His scars. And that's going to cause us to worship even that much more. When we have a full concept of how our sin separates us, and we will carry that knowledge into eternity, and then we look at the physical Jesus with the scars on His wrists, His feet, the thorn prints in His forehead from the crown of thorns that would have been there. We're just going to say thank you. Because He'll bear those marks. And we'll worship Him that much more. And so John publicly and proudly proclaims who Jesus is and that this is Jesus. And He, he, he makes Jesus visible. And, he, and as He says, this is the Lamb of God. And, he, and he, he brings out Jesus in His first advent. And the religious leaders would have seen this as He declares Jesus as the Messiah. Verse 31, He goes on and He says, And I didn't recognize Him so that He might be manifest in Israel. I came baptizing in water. But it was the Spirit coming down upon Him. When we think about the synoptics, this is mentioned in all three synoptics, including, and then also with John's. And we think about how things change. Up until this time, you can be baptized into Judaism. In John's baptism, you can be baptized for the acknowledgement of your sin. But post-resurrection, baptism has a whole different meaning. Up until the cross, everything that was done to line you up with God was an external application. It didn't matter if it was the sacrifice at the temple or, or anything that you did, even in baptism itself. It was all external actions. And it was man being obedient to the works that God had called man to do in obeying the law. Post-resurrection, everything changes. Why? Because no longer is the relationship kept to an outside experience. But it's internal. In Acts 1.5 says this, in speaking of Jesus to the disciples, For John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. There is a difference between being morally and ethically a God-fearer. In fact, we're going to study that on Sunday when we take a look at Cornelius. A marked transition between being a moral or ethical person based on biblical law. The difference is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Jesus called it in John 3, being born again. It's where the Holy Spirit indwells in you, gives you new life. Jesus says, not many days hence, the Holy Spirit, you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and dwell within you. Acts 2, verses 1 through 3 is the day of Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. 
And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting, and they appeared to them as tongues of fire distributing among themselves, and they rested on each one. It was manifest upon them, the power of the Holy Spirit on that day of Pentecost. And again, you want to come Sunday because we're going to take a look at the Gentile Pentecost and how that comes about. You want to know if you're saved or not? Question. Is the Holy Spirit residing in you? If you do not have the presence of the Holy Spirit indwelling in you, you are not saved. Plain and simple. You have to be born again via the Holy Spirit. And John says that within this, there is this baptism with water, but Jesus is going to come baptized with fire. And he's alluding to this, this day of Pentecost that is there. And within this, we see all these eyewitnesses that are there and they're watching. He says, I've seen, I've testified. This is the Son. C.S. Lewis once said this, The church, church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christ. If they are not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. When we think about that, if we are not making disciples, if we are not bringing people to Jesus, to where the Holy Spirit can do that transformative work, then we're just playing a religious game. And as C.S. Lewis would say, it's just a waste of time. It has to be a heart transformation. And we've got to preach the full counsel of the gospel and prepare people for Jesus to be able to meet Him. That's our mission, is to proclaim Jesus. People don't want your opinion about politics or, or anything else. What they want is they want a solution for eternal life. Give it to them. Because if they know Jesus and they, they have the presence of the Holy Spirit, then they can navigate everything else. We need to give them Jesus. Well, John goes on in this, and, and he's leading his disciples. Now, John has, has reached the pinnacle where Jesus is baptized. He's being launched in ministry, and John now needs to start shedding that, that light and moving back. In verses 35 to 42... We read, and again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Now, this is the second time he says this. Two of the disciples heard him speaking, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to them, Rabbi, which translated here means teacher, where are you staying? And, they said, and he said to them, Come and you will see. And so they came and saw where he was staying, and there they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. And one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We found the Messiah, which is translated Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. So here we see something interesting. If John was looking at building a great kingdom to himself, wouldn't you think that he would keep all the disciples to himself? He would, right? I'm not going to let my disciples go anywhere. I want to hold all of my people in. I want to keep them here. I want to build this kingdom. I need more disciples. Don't go following this rabbi over there. 
No. What does he do? Behold the Lamb of God. I already told you it's the Lamb. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. You follow Him. Why? Because in his mind, Jesus is greater. It's the next day after his baptism. He sees Jesus. He acknowledges him as announced in verse 29. With that, and he humbled himself as a humble servant and says, my job is done. My job is done. You go follow him. We are not building a kingdom to ourselves. We need to point people to Jesus. It's interesting to me that two of John's disciples that heard that, one of them is named what? Andrew, whose brother's name is Peter. And we think about this whole discipleship process. John says, you follow him. And there is this invitation and they go following and and we have this unnamed follower that was following John. Many people believe that the unnamed disciple that was with Andrew is the Apostle John. And I would agree with that. I would agree the fact that John the Apostle was first a a disciple of John the Baptist within that. Why? Because throughout John's Gospel, he always refers to himself as the unnamed or he doesn't name himself at all within that. The second thing is you find Andrew and Peter and James and John being the top four apostles or disciples of Jesus that are there. So we have two of the four that are beginning to follow him. The other thing that's interesting here is you find Peter and Andrew, James and John, all being Galilean fishermen. They all knew each other. And they would have all been connected within that. We find Philip showing up a little bit later. What do they do? They're following after him. And Jesus turns and saw them. Now, again, in the original language, it's kind of like Jesus is moving and he sees these guys and he turns and he stares at them. It's not like he just saw them. It's like, oh, okay. No, he turns around and he gives them the look. And, and as he gives them this look, he says, what do you seek? What do you seek? And they said, where are you staying? Now, this is not just a general, like, polite question where he says, you know, are you staying at the Best Western tonight? No. Where are you making your home? Because, again, in the Jewish culture, if you were to follow somebody as a student of a rabbi, you lived with them. This conversation is a conversation of, we are no longer living with John, the baptizer. We are following after you because... John told us to follow after you, and we're doing what John says to follow after you. Where are you staying? Because we're now following you. And now we're now learning from you. Which is, is crazy. It literally is the idea of joining yourself with this. And Jesus received them and invited them to come spend time with them. If you look at 38 and 39, it says he turned and he says, What do you, what do you seek? And, he, and he, they said, Where are you staying? And he said, Come. And you will see. This is an invitation to discipleship. Come. And you'll see. Now, they weren't officially called disciples yet. But they would be what we would call seekers. They're seeking out the truth. Are you really the Messiah? Are you the rabbi? Are you what John would say we we should think of you as a Messiah within this? 
And they call him rabbi, which is just the generic name for teacher within this. You know what else is interesting? Jesus never had a real home. Not really. He grew up in Nazareth. He started in Bethlehem, but he grew up in Nazareth. But after Nazareth, do you realize Jesus never owned a house? Where did he stay the whole time that he had his Galilean ministry? When After his baptism, where did he stay? Peter's house. Where? In the northern area of Capernaum, across from the synagogue in Capernaum. If you've been to Israel, you know the proximity. If you remember, the synagogue was right there, and just a couple hundred yards was Peter's house. And that's where Jesus stayed. Why? Why buy a house when you're only going to be here for three more years? I'll just couch surf for a while. So I think Jesus was maybe the original couch surfer. I don't know. But, you know, he said, foxes have holes, birds have deaths, but the Son of Man has what? Nowhere to lay his head. So I think Jesus was like the original couch surfer, maybe. But you look at this, and he stayed at, at Peter's house within this, and, and this whole place. And so within this, Jesus gives this invitation, come and see, or come and experience the life as a student. Come follow after me, which was true dedication. And I really see this as the first step of transformation. If you want to be a Christ follower, by definition, as a Christ follower, this isn't rocket science, <laughs> by definition as a Christ follower, then what are you supposed to do? Follow Christ. There you go. Christ followers do what? Follow Christ. You know, the word Christian is, has lost so much meaning. When someone says, I'm a Christian, how they define Christian and how you define Christian may be two different things. Isn't that true today? The word Christ follower, and I really love the word Christ follower because there's no room for interpretation there. You're following Christ. Christian means little Christ. But to be a Christ follower means you're following Christ. You're dedicated. You're a student. You're learning. And so they stayed with him in that day. John notes the time. It's the 10th hour. And according to the Jewish culture, the 10th hour would be like 4 p.m., which means it's late in the day. They're not going to go anywhere. They're going to go in. They're going to hang out within this. And so realizing this, they were in that place. And Andrew, realizing that this is the Messiah, what does he do? After spending some time with Jesus, what does he do? He goes and gets his brother who? Peter. Here's another mark of discipleship. Not only in discipleship do you become the Christ follower, but when you find Christ, you're so excited, what do you want to do? Go get people. You want to tell people, I found the Messiah. You should be excited when you find Jesus. I love newborn Christians, baby Christians. Why? Because they're super excited. They're super, they just get excited. You're not going to believe what, what's happened. God's changed my heart. And they get so excited. And then you've been in church for a year or two, and then you become a fuddy-dud. <laughs> Newborn Christians are like, man, i got to invite everybody to come see Jesus. This is amazing. And then you've been here for a while, you become inoculated to the gospel, and you're walking around, i got to go to church. It's my one Sunday out of the month. I need to go. Newborn Christians, they're there all the time. 
When I accepted the Lord in February 1981, and I determined that I was going to follow after God, I was going to give Him 30 days and just entrench myself. It was a challenge because I wanted to know the reality of God. I wanted to know Him intimately, personally. And I could tell you what, at, at the end of that 30 days, I couldn't get up. I was... I was in church Sunday morning, Sunday night, in a, in a young adults group on Monday night, and then I was also in church on Wednesday night. Couldn't get enough. And I was working in a print shop at the time and, and running presses and, and doing different things so I could turn on the radio. And in Southern California, we had a radio station called K-Wave. And K-Wave was nothing more than Bible studies. They were sermons. And they, you get a new new pastor every half hour. So every half an hour, you'd get a different you'd get a different pastor doing that. And I used to drive my employer and the other pressmen nuts because I had it on. Boy, I had it on, and I was listening to Raul Reese and Jeff Johnson and Chuck Smith and just all of these pastors that were teaching. You know, uh, Greg Glory, just all of these guys that were all teaching, and it was like eight hours. They couldn't get away from it. And if the press was ever shut down, then I was telling them. Got to listen to that. That was annoying. We need you to be annoying. Share the gospel. Andrew was so excited. He invited Peter to come and see the Messiah within this. To go to go and get his brother. In fact, he he is probably the first evangelist that's going out. You, Peter, you got to come see the Messiah. We found the Messiah. Literally meaning. He found him his own, as if his life depended on it within this. The other thing that I think is interesting, who was the first person he witnessed to? His brother. Who should you witness to first? Well, your family. And annoy them until they get saved. Or they don't talk to you anymore, but... Share with them. Do you know that friendship evangelism is the most effective form of evangelism? Instead of, you know, putting a billboard out or, or you know, putting a track out or something like that, that's, that's not effective. You know, you might get one every so often that would respond to the gospel or give you opportunity to witness. But the people that you know that you have relationship with, that you're willing to invest your life into, that know you. That's the best form of evangelism. So Andrew goes and gets Peter and says, we found the Messiah. And he brings people. In fact, Andrew not only would bring Peter, Andrew was responsible. If you remember the account of the feeding of the 5,000, who was the guy that found the two, the two fish and the five loaves? Andrew. And so within this, we find Andrew being the guy that goes out. And he says, we found the anointed one, speaking of this, this great promise and within this. And so Peter shows up and in 42, and, and again, it's a longer account in the other Gospels, but he says he brought him to Jesus, verse 42. Jesus looked at him and he says, you are Simon, son of John. And that's the truth. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. In John's account... He's using the Aramaic, and then he's also using the Greek within this. He's translating so that all listeners would hear, whether it's Messiah and the Christ, or it's Cephas translated to Peter. He's giving to him, to all the listeners who 
would understand this this Hebrew language also into the Greek language so that they could hear and understand. And who would Peter become? Acts chapter 2. The first preacher. He would preach the first sermon. And how many people would get saved? Over 3,000. And it all started with bringing a friend. Be a friend. Make a friend. Bring that friend to Christ. Can you do that? Be a friend. Make a friend. And bring that friend to Christ. That's evangelism. Very, very simple. To be able to share them with Jesus. Well, what happened? Jesus has been baptized. John the Baptist is diminishing. Jesus is being lifted up. Now he's got some disciples that's following him and the church is going to grow. As, as this following of Jesus goes, look at verses 43 to 51. It says, The next day he purposed to go to Galilee, and he found Philip, and Jesus said to him, Follow me. And now Philip was from Bethsaida, a city of Andrew and Peter. So they all kind of know each other. Philip found Nathanael. Nathanael said to him, or found Nathanael and said to Nathanael, We have found him who Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. And so Jesus saw Nathanael coming and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him and said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You're going to see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly I say to you that you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. As the discipleship grows and as they are growing these, this group, Philip becomes a disciple. And again, when you take a look at the Sea of Galilee in the northern section is Bethsaida. It was the fishing village. It's probably only maybe two miles or three miles from Capernaum where Peter's house was. When we go to Israel, we see all the fishermen that come out of that area. And then if you go north of that, you can follow it up to Caesarea Philippi, which is where they would hang out a lot. So a lot of the stuff, if you were to take your hands and uh, put your hands out like that, about like that. If you were to put your hands out like that, you would, you would be holding 80% of all of the teaching and all of the miracles that Jesus would do over the top of the Galilee region. And again, those of you that went to Israel with us, you remember us doing that. You see, it is very, very tight-knit. Within this. So he goes up to the Galilee. Question. Why does he do everything up in the Galilee and not down in Jerusalem? You ever wonder why? Why does he go up into the Galilee region where the temple is not there? There's one synagogue. They're really close to Decapolis and all of the Gentile areas. Why does he do everything up there and not in the center of the state? of Israel, in Jerusalem, in the capital, where the, the temple was. Why? 
Because the temple was full of, John called them, a brood of what? Vipers. And the harvest field was in the Galilee. The harvest field where the people were hungry for God and they weren't inoculated by the Jewish religion. I can tell you this, when you go to evangelize, go where the gospel has not inoculated people. Share the gospel with people that, that are there that haven't heard about Jesus. And ask a question. When I say Jesus, what does that mean to you? Ask them a question. Get to know who the people are. And then bring them to a place of understanding Jesus. Philip was Bethsaida, and it was the town of fish. Again, it was this, this fishing village that was there. The other thing that's interesting, not only did he not do his ministry in Jerusalem, where all the, the technically trained priests were, who did he choose? Fishermen, tax collector, zealots, ordinary men. Twelve ordinary men. He doesn't choose the learned. He doesn't choose the elite. He chooses the common man. Why? Because Jesus wants the gospel to go to those that don't have their own agenda. That would be willing to follow him. The problem is if you were to try to get a priest. And Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they struggled, especially Nicodemus. John chapter 3, we'll get there. They struggled because what ends up happening is when you come with that learning, you come with those preconceived ideas. And so the farmers and all of these people, remember, 400 years, all they have is just their, their culture. The gospel would be fresh to them. And it would be great. And so he goes to... Philip goes out and, and he finds Jesus and he goes and he finds Nathaniel and he says, we found him. And you've got to love Nathaniel's response. I found this Jesus. He's from Nazareth. What was Nathaniel's response? Did anything good come out of Nazareth? Why? Because Nazareth would be, what would Nazareth be like? Nazareth would be kind of like our, no offense, Goble. It, it would be this little, know-nothing area that really is not well-known. There's the bumper sticker that says, where, and I'll leave the blank out, is Goble. Why? Because you don't know. Nazareth is like that. In fact, the only reason why Nazareth is even still on the map is because where Jesus was. It's, it's a little, know-nothing town still, even in that. And so within this, Nathaniel, he says, there is no guile. Why? <laughs> I think that's the biblical way of saying he tells it like it is. He just says it like it is. Nathaniel has no filter, which is good and bad. And so within this, Jesus, Jesus understands that Nathaniel was there and he saw him before. Now, Philip's confession was, was scriptural because it comes out of uh, the prophecy, in fact, in John 5, 39 to 40, says this. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It's these that testify about me and you're unwilling to come to me so that you might have life. Philip says it's the scripture that revealed that Jesus of Nazareth 
son of Joseph, son of David. He is the anointed one because the genealogy is there. I think it's important to understand that what you say about Jesus really matters. And Philip's testimony is Jesus is the Son of God. That is the, the, the important thing. Now, Nathaniel the skeptic says, well, I'll believe it when I see it. He says, come and see. And Jesus says, I'll believe it when I see it. Come and see. Jesus says, I saw you. You see the play on words? I'm not going to believe until I see. Well, I saw you first. And then what does he say? He responds with respect. Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Powerful. That's all I need to know. And he's honest. And so the filter worked to his benefit. Because of the supernatural knowledge that is there. When did Jesus choose Nathaniel? Before the foundations of the earth. When did Jesus choose you? Before the foundations of the earth. Ephesians 1, 4 and 5 says this. Just as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons, though Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. When did Jesus see Nathaniel? The mind-blowing thing is this. Before Jesus was ever incarnate, he had already seen Philip underneath the tree. That's powerful. I don't think even Nathaniel got a hold of that. But when you think about it, when did God see you? The day of your salvation. When did God see you? He saw you being saved before the foundations of the world. And He chose you. Does that mean He chose me while I was yet a sinner? Yes. Because He chose you knowing all of that. What great grace. And the declaration of that. You are the Son of God. This miracle. So many times we, we, we look for miracles. Nathaniel responded because of the miracle of knowledge. But you know what the real miracle is? The miracle of salvation. The miracle of transformation. The real miracle is not the knowledge of God knowing you. The miracle of, is God knowing you and choosing you and adopting you. And saying, I want you. You say, well, I didn't have a choice in it. Does it matter? God chose you before you chose Him. God loved you before you loved Him. We respond to the work that God has done. Nathaniel, I loved you before you even heard my name. And Nathaniel responded, you are the king. And it's the right response for that. And then he finishes, Jesus finishes with this, this cloaked prophecy that you're going to see greater things. Where the, and, and he's referring to Genesis 28, 12 to 13. He says he had a dream, speaking of Jacob's dream, when Jacob had what we know as Jacob's ladder. He had a dream, behold, a ladder was on earth, and his top reaching up to heaven. Behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the land which you lie, and I will give it to you and your descendants. The Old Testament dream was a ladder. 
The ladder was the tool that was used in order for man to be able to connect with God, and the angels would come up and down. Where did that place take place? A place called Bethel. Bethel, house of God. There would no longer be a ladder necessary with Jesus, because Jesus would be the mediator, the connection. The greater things, you know what's greater? You're going to see me ascend. You're going to see me in heaven. You're going to see me descend. You think it's a good thing that I knew you before the foundations of the world? Oh, you haven't seen anything yet. But isn't that true for us? Do you think you've seen it all with God yet? No. We ain't seen nothing yet. You imagine what's gonna, what you're going to see the last time you close your eyes on earth and, the, and twinkling an eye, you open them again in heaven. We think about all those saints that have passed this year and gone before us. And the minute they stop here and in twinkling of an eye, and we see the glory of God. We ain't seen nothing yet. When the power of God is present before us, when all we can do is cry with the angels, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, to be able to be in that place of just full surrender within this. Do you realize how blessed you are? Blessed you are. There isn't anything in this world we have to worry about. Why? Because everything in this world is going to pass away and God's got our life. Why? Because Jesus has saved you. My hope is that you trust in Him. That you see Him as your Lord and King. As we close tonight, I want to encourage you as we sing this song, The Blessing. I I want you to really make it your prayer. And receive it as a blessing that God has blessed you. But also really meditate on the words. The Jesus that has been revealed to you is the hope of glory. And we are a blessed, blessed people. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you that you have given to us this hope of this future. That Lord Jesus, you didn't hold anything back. That you came to earth to save that which was lost myself. Those that are in this room, those that are watching online. Lord, you have, you have called us your own. Lord Jesus, as we see what you did in, in coming to earth to die on the cross, a sinner's death when you never sinned, to save the sinner. What a wretch I was. But now I'm forgiven and I'm holy. God, I am blessed. I am blessed to be called a child of the Most High. Lord, as we worship you, may we worship you in that manner and in that light. From a blessed heart and a blessing that we can pass on to others as we bring others to meet you, Lord Jesus. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.
blessing that you offer to us, that you give to us. And Lord, we are blessed. May we live as the blessed and share that blessing with others and bring people to you, Lord Jesus, so they might in turn also be blessed. And as we do that, as we walk in this world and bring that peace of God that's present in us, That peace that other people need. May what we do and what we say make you smile. We thank you and we praise you for our time. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen and praise Jesus. Have a blessed week. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.